welcome. Welcome to Conversations in Compassion, a podcast by Dignity Maine, a program of Agape, and made possible by the contributions to Agape. Thank you. This is a different podcast. Instead of interviews, we have conversations. This is my attempt to demonstrate examples of what I call compassionate conversation. Through these conversations, I hope to address the discord in our families, in our communities, and in ourselves. And finally, to focus on the greatest need of our time, the need for compassion. Welcome again to the, these remarkable conversations, which we call Conversations in Compassion. This one, uh, this one is an incredible opportunity to hear what it's like to be part of the, this community disease and to not be the user in a, in a medically oriented world, we look at the person that's suffering and we don't look at the entire context of who is suffering. And I think Mary does a beautiful job of sort of speaking to the shame that each person feels in their own way is similar and the same. And she speaks to the loneliness, the isolation. And how still is in her own process repairing her own family of origin. How hard it is to be empathetic to each other. And they're caught by the disease and the shame. And as a recovery ally, she's now making a commitment to sit with people who are both allies and People who have suffered with the actual behavior of using and can feel the empathy for that because she knows the shame. Thank you for listening. So, Mary, thank you. Thank you very much for being here and being a part of Conversations in Compassion. And I wanted to have a frank conversation with your perspective of being a recovery ally, a person who's grown up around this issue of alcoholism and drug addiction. And now that you're a young adult yourself, what's all this been like for you? It... don't know where to start and what's it been like for me it's been a lot of different things as a young adult it has been something that I think about in different and often more ways um, than when I was younger and actively in a household um, with a parent who was an addict and using substances. 
it's something that now I, I see the chaos of what my life used to be. Mm. And that's something I think about a lot. And especially when it comes to building relationships with my family members as a young adult, mm. I want it to be different than it was 10 years ago. Mm. And it's, it's challenging and I want to say rewarding <laughs> some days more than others. But it's, it's something that I'm still trying to understand about myself, about what that impact was like and where I feel it and how I feel it. Yeah, you're, it's, it's kind of unraveling as you grow. And the thing that you notice is that it, it really impacts your family, your, your family relationships, so. And uh, you're also aware that it's, you know, there's a part of you that's sort of always got it and you're trying to understand it, kind of pull it apart in a way to see how, how did this impact me to be in a family where addiction was front and center, at least in one adult. Most definitely. And, you know, when we... When you now are in a place where you're trying to help people or support people who you know, have uh, the addiction or actually are in recovery or discovery, whatever phrase we want to use, and you're sitting there watching all of this unfold as a recovery ally in a sense, like you're, you see their struggle, you get mad at their struggle. What do you notice from your eyes what this field of addiction looks like? One thing that has struck me so far is the empathy I can have for other people mm. is not yet the empathy I can have for my own family members. Mm. Mm. And that I can listen to their stories and hear their pain and see the trauma at the root of it all mm. and have such empathy for, for how they have coped and how they have used substances. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to my own family members, there's still that young person in the room with them who had to, who didn't see that that trauma was at the root of it and only saw the chaos unfold and only saw herself trying to pick up the pieces mm. and to build a life for a family that mm. a parent couldn't give. Mm. And I think I thought in some ways that by understanding addiction and some and substance abuse, I would have more empathy for my father in particular. And I do. But it has also come with a lot of anger. Mm. As, and now that he is sober 
and not using. There's anger around that timing. And why now and not before? Mm. Yeah, not by now, not at 12 when I needed, you know, I don't, it, it didn't need to be in a family of chaos. And what it has left me with is I can see the world. I can see the world suffering. I mean, most recently you went through a training where most of the people in the room were in recovery. They had their own disease, if you will. Um, probably was the only person in the room without it. And uh, you, you could just feel the stories as they unfold. And you could have empathy for it. You can hear their pain and you can feel, I could feel their words without the lived experience. Mm. And that was an incredibly powerful feeling for me to Mm. be in a room of people that I could relate to Mm. in a lot of ways. And though, even though I haven't had a substance abuse problem myself or had a, a needle in my arm or used chemicals or meth or something, I could feel the same pain. I could feel the anger and the rage and the abandonment and and the wound and the hurt. And the trauma of, of being left, being isolated. And then, you know, being a, a child, actually, and an adolescent that wondered if the reason that people don't stop is it, is it because there's something wrong with me? And you could feel the same shame. A huge amount mm. of shame and shame that I tried to hide mm. growing up. Mm. Isolation Mm. was how I did that. Mm. And we talked, I had conversations with a few people in this training about the feelings of loneliness Mm. and how difficult it can be to be alone. Mm. And that was something that really resonated Mm. with me. Mm. And that lack sometimes of trust you have for yourself. Mm. And my pain isn't that I don't trust myself not to use a drug. My pain is that I don't know myself outside of this family that I was always trying to fix Mm. and make better. Mm. And there's a lot of self-discovery that comes with your as being a 25-year-old and that comes with your 20s and, and all of that. Mm. And to me, this has been an, an added layer to that in a lot of ways. And layer might be a, the wrong word, but it's been a part of it that has been so acute to me mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. It's, a, it's not just a sensation or it's a feeling that I can pinpoint oftentimes in my body, even mm. of that pain mm. that still very much exists and still drives a lot of what I do. Mm. You can, you can feel the loneliness that came from trying to hold on and fix all this chaos. Even though it didn't get fixed. 
and realizing now that there was no way to fix it mm. is a tough pill to swallow. Right. And it makes it hard to go back into your family is what you were saying earlier. You know, like I can have a lot of empathy for people that are suffering. I can be their ally. But I'm still struggling with being an ally to my family because there's a part of me that's mad. And there's a part of me that hasn't recovered from what that trauma meant to me as a kid. Mm. And how can I be there for them and hold space for empathy when I don't feel like I've moved on myself from it? Yeah, because when you're with them, the the feelings come alive, the anger, the disappointment, the hurt, the trauma itself. And you can, it's hard to kind of push that aside to get to empathy. And uh, it doesn't feel like it comes. It doesn't. And you feel isolated alone from the people that had the title family. And it's amazing to me how even through understanding something, from understanding the root of addiction, mm. whether that be from a mental emotional sense or a physiological sense, mm. it still doesn't translate mm. to a, a lived feeling mm. for me and something that I can feel and can evoke empathy from. Mm. Because there's still that part of me that doesn't want to forgive. Mm. And that also doesn't trust that it won't, that chaos won't unfold again. And again, and again, as it has. And you're tired. Tired of fixing it. Tired of being mad and not heard. Tired of living from the perspective of all those things. Yeah. And the, and now you're trying to almost, there's two parts of you, the one that says, I, I don't want to have anything to do with recovery or discovery or I don't want to be a part of that at all. And then there's another part that says, I learned a lot. I have something to offer here. And one of the things I have to offer is that part of me that really still loves and is empathetic. And the part of me that I know, that I know exists. Mm. I know that empathy is there. Mm. And I have to remind myself that I'm doing this work and I'm having these conversations and I'm trying to heal because I know that exists. Mm. And I don't know what it's going to look like when I get there or when I get there but that I can be as angry and disappointed and feel so empty mm. and still love so much mm. and still want to find forgiveness mm. in some way. And you can feel like you know that's the dream for you. Most definitely. You know, and that I have to go through the piles of chaos 
and and the abandonment in the moments where these moments in your life where nobody was present because the chemical stole them one way or the other, either they were enabling it or running away from it or getting mad about it or they were doing it, but it didn't matter. You were left by yourself in those prime moments. You could feel like, what's wrong with me? If you don't love me enough to put it down. And that thought of why, why is your love for me not greater than your love for this drug? Mm -hmm. I remember I thought about that a lot, Mm -hmm. a lot as a kid. Mm -hmm. And it's still, it still resonates. Mm -hmm. And you can feel like it's a cycle, something that you can't get an answer to. And it compounds. And to see the way drugs, my dad was the one using drugs. But my mom was the one hiding us from the shame Mm. of it. Mm. And protecting us from the drugs. Mm. And I was the one that was lost without either of them because they were chasing something. Mm. One was chasing the secrecy of it and the other one was chasing the drug itself. And you could feel, I mean, the one thing that's come out of all of this for you is that you've sat in now in the circles with people that have really struggled with chemical dependency, substance use disorder, substance misuse, whatever we want to refer to it. You've sat in the circle and you could feel that you and them have the same shame. It takes on different words and requires different means of covering it up and filling the void. But that shame is, it's so familiar. Mm. So familiar. And that is, that's human. Mm. That's the human experience. That's not the drug addict's experience. It's our culture's experience. It's our community's experience. We're all walking around with a part of us that's ashamed. And why we choose to stigmatize those who use drugs to cover up their pain versus those we use alcohol or sex or lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Gambling, the list and goes on. I around. mean, like even motivation or like this forward momentum, this workaholic lifestyle, these things that just you keep moving mm-hmm. and you move away from it. And mm-hmm. the fact that we stigmatize drugs the, the way we do just, it, it baffles me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Especially given the fact that oftentimes this addiction starts from a prescribed method, Mm -hmm. from a prescription that you are allowed to take. Mm -hmm. And then at one point someone says, you can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Without ever, it just makes me angry at 
how how the system works in general, how the medical system treats trauma mm. and addiction mm. and how much people have to carry on their own, mm. how little empathy there is mm. in the world to help one another. I think sometimes about what my experience would have been like growing up had I not felt so much shame mm. around who my dad was mm. and my prerequisite for him being in my life mm. was that he was a quote unquote normal dad, right. that he was the one at the soccer field, that right. he was picking us up from school, that he was doing those things that I thought dads did. And that your dad had a health problem. And if he had had a health problem of diabetes or had a health problem of a heart attack and was recovering, then you would never have the shame. At all. And I wouldn't have had the same shame if the messaging from the people close to me in my life wasn't, your dad's dangerous. And he can't be trusted. And we need to get you away from him. Because you need to be safe from this illness. And it felt like it painted our family as, as a victim to all of this. Mm. And I don't think we were. But that was what I tried to hide right? almost every day. And then you had to do it by looking good or fixing the chaos or trying to have an order. There was so many ways and all of that made you unravel at some point in your life to the point where you were wondering, who am I? What am I about? And back to that feeling of emptiness mm. and loneliness in a way I hadn't experienced before. Mm. That once I was out of that setting mm. and out and not able to do the things that I'd been doing for years to cope mm. with what I was feeling, it all crashed down around me. Mm. And that was really scary. When there's people that say this is not an individual disease, an individual health problem, it's a family. And you could feel it right there. You could feel like, I don't have anything different than those people that I s sat with who were in recovery from their disease. I have the same disease the same isolation and once I stopped my patterns I hit a bottom and it was powerful and I've been crawling out to find myself and I have an, I have an idea in your head that says if I could try to hold empathy for the illness that both of my parents took on 
if I could have self-empathy for myself, I might be able to find forgiveness. And if I could find forgiveness for self and others, I might be able to peek on the other side of the shame. And it's no different. It's no different. It's no different. Once you're at that place. Okay. It's a, love the term, you know, the unspoken legacy. We can just feel it. It just rolls down. You feel it in your body and in your cell structure. How powerful it is. Dictates the way you do everything. And you're built from from those experiences. Mm. And especially as a kid. Mm. When there was so much physically growing and changing. And that is what I hold on held on to. Mm. And that's not only what my mind remembers, but what my body remembers. Yeah, that when your dad started to use and get caught up in the compulsive use pattern. You could feel everybody not celebrating the health problem, but actually retreating into unsafe, believing he's unsafe, believing that you better not tell the world. You can't tell the world. And when people ask you, why did dad not pick you up at soccer? You can just say, he's, he's not feeling well right now. Instead of the truth. And there was a point where I stopped asking for the truth. Mm. I wasn't often given it. A lot was hidden from my brother and I. Mm. As a means of protecting us. Mm. But wow, the words that weren't said and the things that weren't shared. They just compounded the point of I had no idea what was going on and I didn't it's not like I could put words to the shame and the pain I was feeling and growing up in a in a smaller town in a wealthy affluent white town where Mm. not only was there one standard of, of how you should be living and things you should do and the person you should be but God, I tried to hide everything behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And I didn't always know what I was hiding mm-hmm. because I wasn't old. Mm-hmm. And I was afraid to read the newspapers because then I would see my dad's name. Mm-hmm. And I still won't Google his name. Mm-hmm. Even though now I feel like I could handle mm-hmm. anything I read. There's still that voice inside of me that says you can't Mm. you can't know because what you know can hurt you and that you're sort of investing yourself in these last sort of few months and now doing some community activism around this idea of raising the voice up so that it's no longer unspoken no longer secret and bringing compassion to the conversation, that empathy that you felt for everybody in the room and hoped that they would give it to you 
because it was all the same. And the connection I felt mm. to those I was talking to who were telling me their stories about recovering from 10, 15 year heroin addictions mm. that I could sit in a room, room with and, and feel so close to mm. and feel like we had experienced a feeling together. Mm. Even though I, I don't, I couldn't picture, nor would I want to, what the lived experience was that translated into that feeling for them. Mm. And that's the part that has opened me up in so many ways that has absolutely gutted me mm. <laughs> to feel that connection is exactly what I was missing. Mm. That it's not a lonely experience mm. that, that I felt. Mm. Yeah. While you were listening, you could feel the same shame. You could emerge in the empathy and the compassion. You may not have known what it was like to be in that alleyway, but you certainly knew about the loneliness that was in that alley. You knew about the unspoken. I thank you. You know, our goal was to spend a few minutes and allow people to understand that it doesn't matter what role you have in the family, we're all in recovery. And so... I want to thank you for your incredible honesty about trying to sort out the chaos and still feeling like I got to figure it out still. And also that great empathy that you have for others that comes from the shame and the pain and the chaos and the respect you have for the people that have struggled including yourself. Thank you for, for having me and for allowing me to give a voice to the people who are also in recovery alongside our family members and the people we love. Yeah, and then as we lean into September as Recovery Month, I don't want it to be just the people who stuck the needle in their arm, or the people who drank, or the people who got caught up in a compulsive behavior. But I really want to just say that everybody that's around them, that cares about them, has a right to recovery too. That if we centralize it, then we're just shaming. Shaming everyone. for listening to today's conversation and I hope you enjoyed it if you like what you hear please consider subscribing to Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever else you find your podcasts I'd like to give a heartfelt thanks to all the contributors to Agape Inc for their support in making this podcast possible 
If you care to join us, please go to datingyourmain.com to get involved. Thank you. Thank you again for being here. Take care.